The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Talo for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-Off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-Off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz/donate. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by Spark Lab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about Spark Lab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callahan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Pound. There are a lot of businesses right now looking at a completely changed future. Many people working in events or in industries relying on travel and tourism especially. What do you do when you look at the next six months and all your revenue is gone? Well, for some, there will be no easy answer and we really feel for you. For others, there may be ways you can change your offering and do something new with your skill set. This podcast is a conversation with one of New Zealand's top science communicators who's been working and talking with the Prime Minister to help share awareness and information in the time of COVID. Dr Michelle Dickinson is well known as NanoGirl, her science communicating, experiment making, science cookbook authoring alter ego, with a PhD in engineering specialising in nanotechnology and a love for sparking interest in science. Dr. Dickinson has worked to increase the quality of our national conversation through media appearances, a Herald column, and her live events. Events that can't happen for the foreseeable future. Faced with this drop in income and uncertainty for her team, the spirit of invention and experimentation kicked in. Looking at zero revenue, the team kicked into gear and pivoted over the course of three days to create an online learning platform that can help kids stuck at home experiment with items found around the house and learn through doing. With a lesson every weekday for only a dollar a day, it's already finding a great audience. To talk the journey to here, changing everything and getting the new venture up while also stepping up to share quality information in the media, Dr. Michelle Dickinson joins us now. Kia ora, good morning. Kia ora, good morning, Simon. Hey, thanks so much for being here in such a busy time. <laughs> That's okay. Just so everybody at home knows, we are on literally hour one, pretty much day one of the lockdown. So it's it's eerie times in New Zealand. Yeah, and, and everything new. And so we're recording on Zoom uh, and phone audio, which is a little bit of a change too. So that will explain our kind of audio. Hey, so tell me, um, t- tell me back to the beginning, what, what started your love of science? Oh, I was just one of those kids that tinkered. I mean, we didn't grow up with much. And so when things broke, you learned how to fix them. 
And I was just really, you know, always on a mission to try and fix it rather than try and, you know, try and afford to buy a new one. And so I didn't realize I was interested in science at the time. I just knew that I liked looking inside things and figuring out how they worked and then just tinkering with them to see if I could make them different. And I've done that since I can remember as a kid. Um, but nobody said that's a career. They just said, Michelle, you're being annoying. Why are you pulling the screws out of things again? <laughs> I read somewhere that your your father was um, an electrical engineer and that you travelled a lot with, with him growing up. Did that background of having a kind of doer in the family help to open that world up to you? 100%. I mean, my me being an engineer today is probably because of my dad's wanting to learn. So my dad and my mum don't have any high school education. And my dad joined the Royal Air Force when he was a teenager, straight out of school. And um, and when I was eight, and they, they met and had me very young. So when I was eight, he was still only in his early 20s. He decided that to try and make more money for the family, he needed to try and learn a skill. So he went back to night school to try and get his um, his high school qualification. And he did it in, in electrical engineering. So he got a diploma in electrical engineering. And I remember him coming home with a soldering iron and a circuit board trying to learn circuits. And I sat right next to him as an eight-year-old. And I said, I want to do this too. Um, and he let me. He gave me a soldering iron and he just said, OK, let's do this together. And so that exposure to tools and things and nobody saying I couldn't just saying of course if you want to learn I'll never stop that and, and being really hands-on has definitely shaped my career and it's part of why I do what I do now which is give kids hands-on learning experience where I never say you can't do this I say just go and build and see and have fun and have adventures because I understand you know school wasn't my strong spot but building things at home was and, and I've been able to make a career out of that so I'm trying to help make others maybe see if this is their pathway too. Yeah, and that's so cool, that idea that, you you know, you can be it if you can see it. And if you see someone learning and upskilling and taking on uh, new challenges and actually physically opening things up and, and letting you have a go too, that's probably the most extreme example of that, isn't it? Definitely. And, you know, I don't think anybody grows up and goes, oh, I became a dot, dot, dot because of maths level 1.2. We all go, oh, I had these experiences and, and this is, you know, what gave me the curiosity to want to do it more. And so school has its place for sure. But I think we don't necessarily put as much value on which we should on the experiential, the deep dive learning, the just tinkering things that actually shape who we are. And after studying and um, and, and, and getting uh, degrees, you traveled around the world. And how, how did you how did you end up in New Zealand? OK, yeah. So. So it sounds really good. I got all these degrees. Um, I think we should, uh, there's a little bit of the story here where I didn't pass high school. So I dropped, I was, whatever. I wasn't very good at reading and writing because my parents weren't good at reading and writing. And so I actually didn't get through high school. I worked in a sports store. I sold shoes for a while. Um, and so there's a little bit of a journey in there, which is that, you know, school had always told me that I couldn't because I was a slow reader. And so I had always believed that I couldn't be anything. Um, and nobody had used the word engineering with me, even though my top class was woodwork and metalwork. Um, woodwork and metalwork was a place that they threw the kids that were disruptive. So, <laughs> um, and so I never really believed in myself or ever knew I could be an engineer because it was never a word used with me. So there's a bit of a story there where I fixed my bosses um, in the sports store computer. He introduced me to somebody. I finally got into a probation period at a polytechnic where I got 
uh, eventually a degree in engineering and then fell in love with it and then threw to a PhD. And that opened all sorts of opportunities. So um, one of the first places I got to work was a place called Apple, right, when they were inventing this iPhone thing that was going on and got to use my nanotech skills in um, helping develop the, the screen for them. And then went and worked for a whole bunch of high tech companies, Microsoft, Intel, IBM, and then some medical tech companies um, really developing um, cutting edge tech because at the time, that was right at the growth period of nanotechnology, where everything was getting tiny and super smart. And so I got to travel the world um, doing this cool stuff. I lived in the States um, for 10 years, having grown up mostly in um, the UK and Asia. And then I was just like, I, I need to find a home. It sounds really strange. Um, I'm mixed race. And so being mixed race and having grown up with multiple cultures and languages, people would say to me, are you going home for Christmas? And I'd be like, oh, what does that mean? And most people have, you know, one ethnicity or, or parents who have always lived in the same place. And so home is where they grow up. Because I was a military kid, I never had that. And I never knew what the word home meant. And so I was in my late 20s going, I need to find home. <laughs> it's a bit of a Wizard of Oz sort of style. I, you know, clicked my feet and said, where is this place? So I just got on some planes and just tried some countries on around the world. I moved to Japan for a while which I loved the um, organization of, but didn't, it wasn't going to be my home. I moved to India and I just tried some countries on. And as I was trying them on, I, I popped over to New Zealand and two feet down here before I'd even, you know, got out of South Auckland sort of Mongery area. I was like, oh, this is it. This is this is where I need to be. Um, but, you know, and then I had to try and figure out how to actually come here for a job and all the other things. Um, but figured that out long term and managed to get the University of Auckland at the time to, you know, get me to come over and I built a, a nanomechanical testing lab, which is, was the biggest and the best um, in Australasia. So we could have this center of excellence here. And that was it. I moved here and literally had found my home. No doubt this is where I was supposed to be. Ah, that's, that's so cool. Um, how, how was it that you, um, you, you ended up in the, the world of the very small, the world of nanotechnology. Um, and, and I think that's so interesting that, you know, you excelled in um, workshop class. And I'll bet that the normal path for boys out of workshop path uh, class would they'd say, you should go to a fitting and welding, or you should go and do uh, some kind of basic engineering kind of thing. And maybe the world would have opened up a lot quicker for you. Do you think there was a, a thing about that's just not what young women do uh, when you were in school? Oh, totally. I mean, I was the outlier in woodwork class because I was building all of these things. And and so, we, you know, most of the girls that I hung out with at school wanted to do home economics and cooking and sewing. And I was like, I just don't care about that. I just want to build more things. I was really interested in, you know, details about different joints I could make. And, and people thought I was weird, but I just got my head down and did it. And, and again, because there's very little curriculum in those hands-on classes, you're just able to just do what you love and show your personality through things that you create. And I didn't find that in some of my other more formal subjects. Um, so I think, yeah, that was a really big part in it. What I really struggled with, and, and I still see it today, is the language that teachers use around children. So yeah, if you're good at metalwork, you should go learn a trade and become a welder versus oh, I see you're good at this. Maybe that's because you learn with your hands versus, you know, there are different types of learners. And I've learned way too late that I'm a kinesthetic learner. That means that I learn by doing. And I think woodwork was one of those classes that I learned by doing. And I realized that that 
it wasn't just the subject, it was the way that I learned. And so going to a polytechnic university, and I never knew anything about tertiary education at the time, meant that I didn't realize there were different types of tertiary study. And a polytechnic is learning with your hands. It was basically like my woodwork class, but in a degree. And, you know, one of the things I try and do is explain to kids, figure out how you learn, because then you can figure out how to help teach yourself, but also see how your teacher teaches. Because a lot of people who teach, teach in the same way that they learn. And they may not realize that if you're a hands-on learner, that they're not providing those opportunities for you. So you can go away and, and do those yourself. So I think there's a, you know, there was a lot of learning for me later on in life that I wished I'd known when I was in school so I could maybe have believed in myself a little bit more. Yeah. And then when you were at the Polytech, tell me about kind of like that, that um, move into the world of the very small as, you know, nanotechnology, um, as, as you were saying, kind of blew up as a, a discipline and something of mass utility uh, through that period you were working. So, you know, fantastic area. Um, to be in, what, what what attracted you to to the world of nanotechnology? Okay, this is where you go. Oh, this is probably not the advice I would give to my child as a career move. Um, it was actually so. I'm a bit of a you know sci-fi nut. I loved science fiction, and I was reading this book called Prey by Michael Crichton. He also wrote Jurassic Park, and he's a great technical writer um, of science fiction. And it, prey is all about these nanobots that take over people's brains and then take over the world. And I was reading that going, oh, nanobots, that sounds interesting. And at the same time, I was a massive fan of um, Star Trek. And those of you who watch Star Trek know that the Borg and the Borg Queen assimilates other species through her optical node through nanoprobes. And so I kept hearing this word nano coming up in the things that I was doing for entertainment outside of work and school. And I was like, what does this nano thing mean? And I, I guess I picked up on this nano word and became really fascinated in it. And it wasn't really a thing yet. And I was like, oh. And then um, I found out that there was a professor setting up a nanotechnology lab in America. And I was like, it's like the Borg. <laughs> I need to do this. This is like my science fiction dream come true. Um, so, yeah, I managed to get a place at a university in, in America who were just building this nanotech lab. And it literally came from my love of science fiction and wanting to work in something that wasn't quite real yet, but sounded like it might be important and tied to all the things that I love to do outside of learning. Ah, that's so cool. And tell me about some of the things that you did there. As you mentioned quickly that you worked with Apple uh, on the iPhone and with a lot of these kind of really big tech companies. Um, what was that? Was that a path from doing your PhD in America and then into these into these companies? Yeah, so in America I specialized it in creating a, a new technique called a nanomechanical testing. Basically, I learned how to break things that are tiny and there are lots of challenges with that. So a, a nanometer is a hundred thousand times smaller than the width of your hair. So when you have electronics that are thinner than hair and you want to learn how strong they are, there's a whole bunch of things that are challenging. How do you hold it? How do you see it? How do you break it? Do you twist it? Do you turn it? And so, um, and so my PhD was all about developing ways to break the tiniest of things. And that became really important in the tech sector because suddenly we had iPhones that were filled with thousands of components that were tiny. And you really have to make sure you know how each one of those breaks in case somebody drops their phone because you don't want it to be some little minuscule bit that breaks or when you drop it, your whole phone breaks. Instead, you want your screen to break. So it absorbs all of the energy because the screen is easily replaceable. 
And so I got to develop ways to literally test these tiny things and it became super useful. So then I, I went and, um, and I got headhunted by the company that was developing these sorts of machines to do that. And I helped them build and develop these machines. And then we just got called out left, right and center to all of the tech companies being like, we need to break this thing. We need to, we're building this new smart, something that's tiny. We need to break that thing. And so it was a really good way as a consultant um, in the nanotech space to, to really go into some amazing companies and see what they were up to and, and see how they were all comparing with all of their new things. Um, such a great opportunity for you. I was only in my mid-20s at the time and it was it was incredible and right at that peak. Yeah, so super exciting. Cool, and we'll be back in a minute to hear more about that soon. If you love the spin-off, the best way to show it is to become part of the spin-off members. This is the fund that helps us keep free and accessible to all without a paywall also fund some of our most important and acclaimed journalism. Check it out through the spin-off. Kia ora. sorry for this interruption, it's Alice Neville here. I am the food editor at the spin-off and I just wanted to pop in and tell you about our food podcast, Dietary Requirements. Hosted by me, Simon Day and Sophie Gilmore, it celebrates all there is to know about eating and drinking. There's cooking tips, there's special guests, there's what we've been eating and drinking lately and we try not to chew into the microphone too much so if you like food and drink listen in you won't regret it it's it's at the spinoff.co.nz and all your favorite podcast providers yeah and as an academic as well being able to move through and see what life's like in the most inventive and interesting corporate cultures in the world that are kind of changing the entire way that the world does business and communicates must be a really cool angle as well as academia and uh and, and kind of corporate life can be quite different can't they uh yeah i learned i probably learned the hard way that you know i'm wired for fast um and mvps i'm probably not wired for how academia is set up, which is a little bit slower and much more traditional. Um, and I went in with high expectations of how I was going to change the system and it was all going to keep, keep up with tech. And so I did become an academic at the University of Auckland. I did that for eight years. Um, and, you know, it was it was a really interesting time for me, having not gone through the traditional academic structure, to then be at a very formal um, and prestigious university and be on the inside of what is quite a slow moving ship. And, it, you know, that's the way it works. And totally, that's the way it should work. But I definitely felt like a, you know, a bee trapped in a bottle in there. Um, and so, you know, obviously the story is that I did eight years and then I left. And it was a great time while I was there. But I definitely learned that big corporate and big structures are, are not good for me and my personality. Mm. Tell me about the journey to becoming a science communicator. As um, that, there's a great story there, isn't it, of 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 uh, the the TEDx chat that you did, the TEDx talk, kind of blowing up and opening up this new way of actually being able to share all these things that you loved and you were excited about. And there's just not that, you know, you think about the public discourse. There's just not that many people who are, you know, sharing things that have high domain knowledge and that are particularly useful. There's an awful lot of ex-journos talking about rubbish, but not that many people in the public conversation with this great uh, sector knowledge. Yeah, and I think that's for many reasons. One is we don't have the skill set. So I've been a tech nerd my whole life. I live in the basement. I love just developing new models. 
I, you'll never see me at a party. You'll never see me out. It's just not my style. And I think there are a lot of, um, you know, tech experts who are like me. We're just boring introverts who like to sit at home and watch Star Trek. Um, we don't like the sound of our own voice. We're not sure how to talk about what we do. So it's actually a skill set that I think is lacking in, in the high tech sector and probably why we didn't do it. Um, I did it and I started to learn how to do science communication. And it is something I've had to learn. I've studied really hard and practiced really hard as a skill set. I did it because when I was teaching at the university, it became very clear to me that I wasn't teaching kids like me. It became very clear to me that I was teaching incredibly smart students, but mostly from privileged backgrounds or schools that, you know, are at an advantage in the decile system, you know, high decile or private schools. And I'm not one of those kids, right? I'm a, I'm a low income kid who spent her time getting into trouble a lot. And I don't have the grades to get into the course that I teach. And I really struggled with that. And so I looked into why that was. And, and there were many reasons. One is a fundamental lack of physics teachers around the country, meaning that where you were born in New Zealand means that you probably can't study engineering because you don't have the access to the teachers. And number two, it's a very privileged system. And so if you don't know the system, like I would never have known the system, it's very hard to actually be able to navigate some of these rules that nobody's teaching you about. So I decided to do some research and found that children make up their decision about science for life by the age of 12. And I saw, you know, most universities are pitching to 17-year-olds, so they turn 18 and, and apply. And I said, oh, this is a long-term challenge. So I decided to just go out and volunteer my time talking about nanotech and science to low-decile school kids in primary school and intermediate school, which wasn't really being done. And then you know, the TEDx organizers said, hey, we've heard you're doing this stuff. Why don't you talk about nanotech on the TEDx stage? And I was like, oh, no, that's that's not what I do. I'm not a stage talker. I'm not a public speaker. But got sort of pushed by Elliot and Vaughan being like, yeah, no, people want to hear the story. It's cool. And so I, I literally said, OK, I'm going to make this a project. This is my first ever public speech. I'm going to do it like I'm training for a marathon, train every day and build this thing and, and did it and um, never expected that people would love it. And they loved it. And I, I was able to communicate high level things to kids and adults who had no confidence in science. And, and I really saw some magic there, some magic in what I was trying to do, which is get everybody to realize that they're a scientist and an engineer and they do it every day and to get everybody to start using that language around themselves and build confidence in themselves and and I thought there's a platform here there's there's a way that I can do what I've been trying to do by going into primary schools at a much bigger scale so I said right I've got to learn about how to do this I've got to learn a new skill set which is how to communicate um, and it wasn't taken very seriously the academic community you know were pretty harsh on me the people that I worked with and surrounded myself with. I mean, I had a, a, a guy who's a professor walk up to me to my face and say, if you want to be a high school teacher, why don't you just leave academia and become a high school teacher? And I thought, it's really hard to hear that from your colleagues because it's not about teaching high school kids. It's about inspiring kids to want to be maybe more than they knew they could be. So it's one of the reasons why I left because... Science communication is a really hard place to be and it's really hard to be taken seriously and it's really hard to move forwards in the current academic system because you can't really count it towards your promotion or moving forwards in your career. And so at some stage you really have to make a choice, which is do I keep communicating and hold my career back or do I not communicate and go through to full professor? And 
And, you know, it's a, it's a choice that all of our communicators are having to make in academia. And I hold my hat off to those who decide to stay in it. I mean, Susie Wiles has been incredible in the COVID crisis, but, you know, she can't really use any of these things that she's doing for her career right now. And she's the one who's still battling it on the inside. And I have a lot of respect for her doing that. Yeah. It seems remarkable from the outside that something with so much interesting and cool stuff happening is uh, especially the world of kind of um, uh, science and applied science and the like has been made into such a dry thing. And, uh, you know, it's quite, quite remarkable um, yeah, that there is that tension. And having worked as a reporter um, working with kind of, you know, trying to uh, get science voices onto things, there seems to almost be a, an absolute kind of... Um, the, the, the tension seems to be that to communicate well in a mass medium, you have to simplify things a little bit and make them really uncomplicated. And that can mean you lose some of the detail. And oftentimes, um, people that aren't such good communicators won't lose any detail and have 15 caveats and have all the rest of it. And then no one can kind of follow. So it must be a really interesting kind of um, thing to have to learn when you've been in an environment where you can't just kind of um, generalize and then you're moving into one where sometimes you have to boil it down to the simplest thing or else it's not going to land. Oh, totally. And, um, and you know, people say, academics who I work with in this field go, oh, you know, you missed out this bit and you missed out that bit. And I'm like, I don't care because I brought this many new people with me. And it's, it's that fine line of, you know, any good communicator needs to know who their audience is and who they're communicating to and what it is that they want at the end of the communication. And there are times when I give very academic technical talks and that's okay because there's a bunch of nerds in the room who I know the level that they're at already. But in talking to, you know, hundreds of thousands now of people around the world, parents and kids, there's a level there of just wanting to be let in. And if you want to let somebody in, you have to make it welcoming and you have to make it accessible. And so that's the space I've decided to be at. And I, I'm not devaluing my knowledge. I'm not making it so simple that it, I'm taking away the science. I'm trying to make it accessible so that if you want to get to the next level or learn more, you have the skill set to do that. And then you can go to the next communicator who will get you there. But um, people know that I know the technical stuff. I don't have to prove that by saying it all the time. And having put yourself out there and taken quite a risk to, to do uh, this new way of um, communicating and made life a little bit harder in, uh, you, you know, a very set and rigid structure of the academic kind of world. It must have felt great to to get those bits of recognition, like the Prime Minister's Science Communicator uh, Award and Medal, and then the, the Callaghan Innovation of, of the same type, and uh, the gong and the honours, you know, like, um, yeah, it's so, so great to see recognition for, for what's happening after what must have been quite a difficult change. Oh, incredibly. And I think it's one of the things that kept me motivated and highly embarrassing, too, because I'm not a, you know, I'm not a, oh, give me all the awards person. Um, so incredibly humbling and feel so privileged. And But what it did do is really put some respect there around what it is that we do as communicators. And I think help those who who maybe poo-poo it a little bit, the formal academics go, oh, there is, you know, there is some value to it, or at least it is recognised by others. Because, you know, it's really hard in a system where recognition is all about publishing peer-reviewed papers to feel any sense of what you're doing is is recognised or worthwhile. So, I mean, yeah, honoured to have had the awards and feel hugely embarrassed that I have so many. <laughs> but um, But also it really does keep you motivated and going and 
and remind you that people are interested in this and this is important to them. Yeah, and I guess just as a kind of macro thing as well, like over the last kind of five or so years, there's been this enormous um, uh, falling down of the place of the expert in society, which things like Brexit and Trump are kind of a, a mass response to being told, you know, what's true by experts. And the state that the world has got into from this kind of um, p- political megatrend, it must have been a hard time to be an expert, you know, in, in the age of the anti-vaccination movement, all of these things where people are going, oh, well, you know, I don't care about hundreds of years of cumulative knowledge. I've got this feeling and my feelings as important as anything else. And then to be in this period now where uh, with, with COVID-19, um, yeah, like like a move back to understanding that it is important to have experts and maybe maybe that is an important role in society. Oh, it's huge. COVID really has brought to the forefront, I think, number one, the, the real lack of scientific literacy within our population, um, and that's globally. And that's come from a lack of investment in getting science on TV, having it in mainstream places. I mean, obviously, I've been doing this for about seven years now. And, um, and I've been pushing all of our media saying, we need a primetime show, we need a hard-hitting show, we need people to be able to learn science at home. And every time we've filmed the pilot, it's been amazing. We've got to the last stage and we've been replaced by Heartbreak Island or some cooking show because it's cheap to make that sort of TV. And there's been a fundamental, especially in New Zealand, where we don't have a network that has a mandate to produce science TV. It's different, you know, Australia has ABC, the US has PBS. And so there's money specifically to create that. We don't have that in New Zealand. And if you think about it, we really haven't had any good scientific primetime content for probably a decade here. And so if you've left school, there is nowhere else for you to really learn that and build that confidence up in yourself to then want to go and study more. And I think we're really seeing that when I, I mean, I'm getting thousands of messages a day right now from members of the public asking me about their soap. And is it the right soap? And can you catch the virus from apples? And, you know, and I just think, wow, you know, it's really, it's really basic science that if you, if you understand how viruses transfer, or even if you understand how viruses get into your body, I I had a lady say, oh, it's okay. As long as I don't breathe the virus in, I'll be fine. But it's okay to eat it because my stomach acid will burn it because it's a respiratory virus. And so for that, she just thought that it meant that it can only go in through your nose. And trying to explain to people, no, this is how viruses work. I've I've really seen, I think, sadly, the, the result of our lack of investment in science education and also celebrating scientists as cool people right we talk about rugby players and every kid wants to be a rugby player or a cricket player or a netball player because we celebrate those careers we're not celebrating scientists and innovators and engineers and the people who actually are life changers and world savers and so you know i'm hoping that you know some of the communicators now are becoming renowned and and world famous in their homes being like these are the people we want to grow up to be like because it's really important if we don't have these people in times like this with pandemic, I mean, how, and we've seen it, right? New Zealand has been incredibly privileged to have great communicators. But if you look at other countries, um, the US and the UK in particular, and how little their public are learning about the virus, how few communicators are able to get the platforms that we have been able to get, how little education the public has. Um, I think we're living in a bubble here, a very privileged bubble in New Zealand where this government has valued not only scientific um, advice to make decisions and great decisions, but also scientific communication 
that's on the news right now all the time and in all the media helping people to break down what is a very complicated scientific pandemic. Mm. Absolutely. And as you mentioned before, you know, kids make up a decision very early in their life in schooling as to whether science is something they can do or they can understand. And they just kind of decide, oh, I can't understand that. And then they park it and never come back to it. As people who have that fire lit early on, if they if they are interested, there's so many great resources today that they can access. And, you know, there's wonderful podcasts and TV series that I've created overseas and, you know, really good um books and popular fiction like you know popular non-fiction and so many great things obviously being produced but if you've decided at the age of nine that science is something that's only good for the kids who get 90 percent in school and it's not for you maybe maybe you don't carry on that 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 love for it so i guess that's why it's so important to be sparking sparking that interest in those young children with the work you do yeah and you know i don't think i mean i was really embarrassed about doing poorly in high school i was really embarrassed to have been a failure so I never talked about that until very recently. I just let people assume that I was super smart and I did well at school and that's how I got there. But what I've realized, um, and actually I realized it, so David Downs and I wrote a book called Number Eight Recharged, which is all about New Zealand inventors and innovators and their stories of how they became successful. And I realized that the majority of people we were writing about were also high school failures. And I realized actually that the people that we celebrate as innovators and change makers, a lot of them, struggled at school or dropped out of school because it wasn't the place that they could tinker and make. And I thought, I'm not sure we're telling our kids, especially those kids who are finding school hard, that there's also hope for them. And yes, if you are academically successful, for sure, it makes your life, I think, a lot easier because pathways remain open to you. But if that's not for you, your skill set is just as valuable. And there are so many of us who are embarrassed of our poor academic effort, who actually have been driven and have the skills to also be successful. And so recently, I've really started to talk about that and and encourage kids to obviously do well at school. That definitely is the easier pathway, but also to showcase people who didn't do so well at school and the pathways that they have gone through and why those life experience actually have also contributed to their success. You see these really interesting things about um, people who have been kind of tinkerers and inventors who, <clears throat> like, um, I was listening to uh, Walter Isaacson's book about the innovators and um, a theme that he always comes back to is this idea that so many of the first kind of great inventors of the Silicon Valley, um, you know, you know uh, environment, they'd grown up with their parents having a workshop in the garage and they'd replaced the the vacuum tubes and um, or they'd re- replaced the valves in their uh, radios or they'd gone and actually like worked on the car together and pulled out parts and they'd actually seen the spark plugs and then been able to physically and visually see the, the processes uh, that made things work. Well, these days, everything comes in kind of a, a, a closed system and you need a special computer reader and there's, there's that lack of the everyday person having, uh, yeah, the ability or the understanding to get in there and, and, and tinker with things. Do you think that early tinkering with your dad and that kind of world of what you're trying to spur with the work that you're doing now is getting back to that? Oh, I hope so. I call it the extinction of screws. I don't know what happened, but suddenly screws went extinct and they're not on things anymore. So, you know, we were the generation of kids who would just take a screwdriver, look inside something, put it back together. It didn't break. Now everything's optically bonded. You can't see what's inside your devices, which means that you can't tinker and upskill. And I think we're really losing a skill set 
in not being able to do that. And one of the things that I do with kids is I go to electronic waste and I get, you know, an old video recorder and an old computer and the kids just come and take them apart with me and go on a bit of a treasure hunt to find all of the key components in there. But again, I, I don't think that's happening at home. Um, and even, you know, I'm seeing a lot of this. There are science box kits that now you can buy where you tinker, but they come with exactly the right number of pieces in exactly the same shape that you need them. And so once you've built it, there's no take it apart and modify it. It's just, oh, you built the thing. And I think we're really missing the fact that it's about kids allowing themselves to be creative and try a different piece or try moving something else. That is how they learn about how things work. It's not just getting to the end of being successful and building something. It's almost the better way is you're not successful. So you go back, you take it apart, and then you try and rebuild it. And I think we've really lost that skill set. And I don't think we, um, we valued how important that is in the long term of how our generation now actually have the skills that they need based on all of these times that things broke and they couldn't fix it. And, and so they jerry rig something with well, whatever it is, number eight wire or some duct tape or whatever it is that we needed to do. Yeah, I think it's a real challenge. And I think parents who aren't technical don't have the com- confidence to sit with their kids and say, today we're going to build a circuit. And so that lack of parent confidence too means that they're not willing to do this with their kids because they're afraid that they don't know how. And so those are some big challenges that I think we have um, across the world, not just in New Zealand. If only there was some kind of show that you could watch online uh, in daily increments that could teach you these things or stuff that you find around the house, which <laughs> might be a good segue to go like, so, so you, you know, this, this new um, project that you've made, it was in response to this drop. So with COVID-19 and all events being cancelled, tell me about the state of your business. So what what was the, the majority of the work that you were doing outside of your unpaid science communicator work to help get these uh, ideas and your stage show with, with kids and um, around uh, schools and, and, and halls around the country? Um, t- tell me about what, what the state of your business was and what you were looking at in, the, in light of these changes. Yeah, so after I left academia, um, I co-founded a company called Nano Girl Labs based on the Nano Girl um, stage character that I had started to perform out in public. And Nano Girl, she's a character, she's a wannabe superhero, but she doesn't have any superpowers. So a bit like Batman or Iron Man, she goes to her nano cave and builds some stuff. And the whole premise of the character, she builds things out of rubbish. And so we developed these stage shows where Nano Girl and her friend Boris They build all these ridiculous, giant, explosive things um, with a a stage story. It's a bit like a basically a science pantomime. It's very slapstick and it allows kids and their parents to see giant missile launchers um, exploding. All sorts of things be built by rubbish by people live on stage and they feel the fireball as it goes past them. They hear the sound of the explosion. And we wanted a really immersive experience where, number one, it's the only science show in the world that has a female lead. So that was important to us around role modeling. And number two, it exposed a whole bunch of people who probably wouldn't go to a science, you know, education, academic performance to be exposed to bringing science to life and and hearing about topics they're hearing at school, but in a way that was practical and then they could do at home and And it was amazing. And we'd finally got the business to the point where it had been internationally recognized. 
and we were about to do so we would do a New Zealand tour every year but we were about to do an Australian tour for June and July which then would roll into a Saudi Arabia tour for six weeks which took us to August we were then booked for the Edinburgh Fringe and a UK tour through to October so basically the tour which is a huge financial risk to ourselves was finally being seen by international markets as something that they wanted. And this year we had grown to the point where our international markets had booked us and we were going to go gung-ho on live eventing for the rest of the year. And it was going to be massive and it was a huge growth for our business. <laughs> and then... Congratulations! <laughs> yeah. And so we put all of our... We've been building for this for the past four years. We put all of our eggs in this live eventing basket. We'd set up our international teams. It was going to be massive. And then COVID said, we're going to stop all live events. And we went from a potential income stream where we'd been booked all over the world to um, a zero income stream where nobody wants live events anymore and the whole world is shut down. And I was like, "Uh oh, <laughs> this is not good. And all of that investment and time of building it and then... And then it's gone and you've got, and it's not just you, you've got a, you've got a team to support and you've got all of the logistics in place and what, what is, yeah, like, and, and at the same time as I guess this realization is kind of um, coming in on you, you've also probably never had so many calls on you to help explain what's happening in the media as a communicator. No. Yeah. So here I am. My business has just fallen apart. I've got all these full-time staff who are incredible around the world. We have staff in America and the UK as well. So I'm like, okay, I've got rent to pay on our offices. I've got staff to pay. I have no money. I have looking at the calendar, no money coming in for the rest of the year right now. So I can't even say, well, if we take out a bit of debt here, I can pay you later. I have no idea what the world's going to look like, but I'm not sure that live eventing is going to be what it looks like. And then I was like, oh, and while I'm busy trying to figure out what we need to do to save save our company and our employees, the media is calling me left, right and centre going, can you just do this on the news? Can you? And I was like, oh, it's bad enough trying to run a business when all your full time effort goes into it. But then being pulled left, right and centre and then, you know, Jacinda calling and saying, can we do this video about COVID? Can you fly down to Wellington to do this press conference with kids? I'm like, of course, this is important. But also I have no money and my world is falling apart. And so giving, you know, volunteering my time for public service, it became it became really challenging. And I did not sleep at all, I think, for that whole week as I, you know, my world was falling apart, but I realised I needed to be strong for New Zealand. Yeah, it wasn't my best week. And it mustn't make it any easier to know better than most people why it's so important not to have events if, <laughs> if you've spent years building to that that stage. So, So what do you... What do you do in that instance? And I, mean, I know not every person who's faced with the drop in revenue has the ability to change, but you know, I think this is a really great story for people that may be able to bring parts of what they do into other kind of methods of delivery for, for this new kind of environment that we're in for for the foreseeable kind of future, really. Tell, tell me about what kind of like how you looked at that situation and, and what you what you did to pivot. Well, look, when, when most people deal with a, a very challenging situation, there are two modes. There are fight and there are flight. And I am not a runner. I am a fighter. And I said, I really believe in what we've built. And parents are desperate for this information. And I sort of looked at what was happening. You know, Saudi Arabia had just started closing down all of their schools. Um, I could see that the UK, based on, you know, some of their government decisions, were going to be hit really hard by COVID. And so we're definitely going to have to close some of their schools. And I thought, 
one of the business models that we had is we go into schools and do live assemblies and do teacher training. And I thought there's going to be a challenge here where children are sent home from school. And the, one of the subjects that is really hard to teach online is going to be science and technology. It's going to be the first part of our curriculum that we drop as teachers try and navigate what it's like to teach kids at home. And I thought, and if we if we lose that, even for four weeks or six weeks, if we lose that at a critical age, we're going to build a whole generation of kids who aren't confident in science or tech. And that's going to have a significant challenge on our future workforce. And so I said, look, we do this well. We know how to do this. We two years ago launched something called the Kitchen Science Cookbook, which I built for basically mums who like cooking to realize that they're also scientists to do this with their kids. The feedback from that from the parents was like, thank you. You gave me the confidence to be able to talk technical to my kids, even though I know nothing about it. And I said, well, that's our magic. I said, how can we how can we in this economy build something out of nowhere that can provide this? And literally people need it tomorrow. And so we turned to the team and we said, hey, so this is what we're thinking. We can either all go home and say, wind up the business and say, thanks, Nana Girl was a great thing, but it's not going to survive. Or we can try and build something that is technical and an online platform where we can beam into people's houses every day and do what we did with the cookbook, but with tinkering and engineering and just see if it works. And the whole team said, we're in. We will give you everything. And our team didn't sleep. We pulled in friends and family from around us and, and real experts in the field. So we managed to pull in people like Sean Simpson, who's an amazing community person, and Matt, um, who used to work at Unfiltered to build our EDMs. And, and we just said, hey, we're really stuck. And everybody said, oh, OK. Our friend Andrew Smith became our coder out of nowhere and coded everything. And so everybody just pulled together. And I used to judge hackathons. And I said, OK, I'm going to treat this like a hackathon. We've got three days to not sleep and build something that can actually be used around the world to beam into people's homes to take the expertise that we know about how to talk to parents and how to talk to kids and give them practical hands-on things to do every day for the next 10 weeks so that they don't fall behind and yeah so we did it and uh, it's bonkers that we gave it a go that's so great so in that short ter- period of time you looked at the challenge decided this is a need that people will have and then built the platform to deliver it and then also created the first bunch of content and then are you going to cr- keep creating kind of bunches of content as you go through through the process? Yeah, so look, there was a whole bunch of serendipity there in that people became available at the right time. Some people had been laid off, sadly, due to COVID, and we were able to bring them into our team. But also, amazingly, um, the space above our current Nana Girl office, which was a residential space, became available. The tenants had just moved out. It hadn't been filled And I said to our landlord, I said, hey, that space, you're not going to rent it out over COVID. Can we have it? Can we rent it from you? Because now we have a studio. So we're able to build a whole studio, record, pre-record all of the content um, that we needed, which was crazy as well. We basically built a year's worth of content in three days and filmed it. And now our editor is, is getting that ready because in the lockdown, obviously, we can't be making the new content with the video because our camera guy can't come in. Um, and so now we're able to live in our office because it's a residential as well as a commercial and keep the business going. Um, so everything just fell into place and we had you know, great support from people to do that. And we just said, look, what are our skills? How can we offer it to the world and how can we build something that people can buy and still have what they were going to get with us somewhere else, but actually bring it into their home when everybody's locked down? And practically, it's tremendously useful. There's a lot of parents right now. Um, uh, me, me being one, 
that are sitting in their homes. Everyone can probably hear my kids kind of like stomping on the the floor upstairs. Um, go, going, oh boy, these are the things that we don't have experience in being able to help kids uh, learn with, uh, unless you do have that background, which which we don't. And um, this series of content, not only is it something kind of like fun and enjoyable to do every day with your kids, but you're able to do experiments and interesting hands-on learning things with kind of bits and pieces that you find around the house and, and light that spark with the kids that you know, I, I wouldn't have the confidence to, to be trying to guide them through that without it. Yeah, and, and so people think we've built a platform for kids. We haven't. We've built a platform for parents. We've built a platform for parents who have, for the first time in their lives, found themselves at home long term with their children without being able to send them off to a camp or somebody else for the day. And children at home all day, every day, is a lot of work, especially if more than one. And parents are, you know, they're not trained educators. They don't know how to create timetables or structure. They don't know how to map to the curriculum so their children don't fall behind. And so we've built a platform to help parents just navigate this pretty challenging time. Um, And we've done that in a way that those who can afford it can pay. And it's a buy one, give one. So those who can't, and we've had thousands apply to our wait list for the free version, are able to still access this um, and still be able to do this, even though right now we're in a financially challenging time. How has the response been? As it's so fresh, it's only a few days old. <laughs> How's it going? Well, we only really launched, I guess, less than 48 hours ago. So it is going well. Um, the people who have signed up are loving it. Um, obviously, we haven't even had any time to market or promote it. So we've just gone out to friends and family through social being like, hey, here's a thing. And um, and people are loving it so far. So now our goal is just to spread the message to, you know, hopefully parents who love it will then share it with their parent friends and go, this saved me three hours a day and we trust the content. And so we're hoping organically people will share it as we try and figure out how to do marketing at short notice with a product that has literally just been invented. So we're still navigating that side, but so far people are subscribing and we have a private Facebook community group for people, for parents who are subscribed. And in that group, it's been amazing. Everybody's sharing their photos and all the kids are doing their things. And it's so lovely to see the content that we're making not only be used, but that kids are loving it and really enjoying it. And that was always our goal. And parents are feeling confident that they can answer questions about what the word thrust means and how it applies to flight because they've got their cheat sheet that we sent them in the morning that says your ca- your kids will ask you this question. Here is the answer. <laughs> mm. Oh, It's so cool and such a, such a great... Um kind of ongoing application of the mission that you've had as well and that I'm sure that some kids in the stage shows will come out with a fire lit that doesn't go out but it's kind of the constantly doing things that keep you making new habits and knowing that new things are available to you uh, isn't it and I think that a daily access to something will will uh, spark it uh, uh, to a great degree. Yeah and you know this is part of um, being a small business with big growth plan. So we had already thought about, so our plan, we had just come back from America where we were about to go for seed funding to create an ongoing in your home learning app. So we'd been thinking about this before and we thought, well, this is a big project. It's going to take, you know, so we were going for seed funding for a million and a half dollars to build a prototype app to try this to be released two years from now. So we had thought about doing this. We'd never thought about doing it in three days. We'd always thought about having, you know, our plan had been engineering team, a year to prototype, then modifying, blah, blah, blah. But we had, as a business, thought about what was next for us and how do we use digital to, you know, get to more customers and be more impactful. 
So we were really lucky, I think, as a small business that we had considered this and had some of the structures in place that we had thought about as a long term project that we were able to literally just put into gear today to say we're going to do this. So I think part of that is as a small or any business, making sure that, you know, you already had strategic plans in place to say, what is next? How would we grow globally? And so we literally put all of that research, which had been a past year of our time, saying once we finished our events, what else could we do? Uh, we never expected that we would take all of that and then build a year's worth of content in three days. <laughs> so, yeah, there we are. It's happening and um, it's never going to be perfect. And that was the thing. I had three days to launch something and it was never going to be perfect. And it isn't perfect. And we're modifying every day. I'm still coding in the back end as we speak. But part of it is an MVP. It provides exactly the solution we need and it will become more shiny as every day goes along. And parents have been really forgiving for us saying, yes, oh. we get it. You are still building it. I absolutely love it. And it's such a great symbol of um, inspiration and experimentation and innovation that everyone is having to look at their businesses and um, change and also be really, I think, um, cognizant of the fact and really generous of the fact to everyone else that you know while you're changing some things might be difficult and it might take a little bit of uh a little bit of teething pain and the like and and that's just kind of the environment that we're all in at the moment yeah and you know we're in a really privileged situation in that we had planned strategically and we have the ability as technical people to also build a platform as well as the content look we are so lucky um to have that skill set and be able to just do this and you know we did this so the relief package came in and the government put a relief package in that said we'll give you 12 weeks and we said to everybody in the team we have choices here we can either give you your, your money and shut the company down or we can use this money and all of our savings to try and invest in something that might grow and so everybody in the company was willing to take that risk with us and so being brave and trusting in in our ability to to actually do something was was really good. And I had a tear in my eye. One of our employees yesterday, she's amazing. And, and as she was leaving, we were saying goodbye because obviously the lockdown was coming in. I said, see you in four weeks. She turned and her husband, her partner had just been laid off um, from his work. And she turned, she said, thanks for creating a company that provides hope every day because actually I really need that right now. And, and you forget as business owners that you can become a big part of your employees' lives and you can choose how to navigate challenging times. And we chose to do it with hope and optimism. And so here we are still optimistic. <laughs> and a couple of a couple of last questions um, before we go, like um, that, that we like to ask everyone, um, what advice do you have for people who who might have, um, you know, might be in a, in a industry or a, an area where there are a lot of conventions but they see that there's some magic to share, like, uh, and, and that there will be a bit of a leap for them to take. Um, but yeah, and, and it might involve putting themselves out there in a way that's not not their favourite thing to do either. Having had to learn yourself to like become a, uh, a, a, not just a communicator, but also be able to really connect and entertain children as well. Like, what advice do you have for people who, who might be looking to kind of share what they know? Yeah, so my advice is number one, build a skill set. You can't just, nobody can go out and just become a communicator. It's actually a learned skill. And number two, 
partner with somebody who has different skills than you. So my co-founder is also my husband and that's because he's my polar opposite. And I know what I'm good at, but I know what I'm not good at. And he tends to balance out the other side. And, and our, whole, our whole team actually has very different skills, which means that we're a well-rounded company. I see a lot of people try and do this on their own. I go, oh, I'm just going to go create these online programs by myself. But actually, if you're going to do this as a business, you really need to partner with people who have skill sets to you. And so don't try and do it by yourself. Pull in all the help that you can to say, what are my weak points and what am I good at? And do the bits that you're good at and learn those better. And don't think you can be a one man or a one woman show because it's never going to be the best that you can be. So my advice is get help, get mentorship, see who can um, who can provide the skills that you don't have so that what you do have to offer is um, as amazing as you can possibly make it. And one last question, which is, you know, uh, what you've, you've had a lot of success uh, in what you've done with the recognition, uh, with your academic career, uh, with, with the PhD, with the work that you did in your lab and the amazing kind of uh, research that you helped to, to get along with the business that you built and the, 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 the getting uh, a lot of science communication into the world. Like having had a lot of success from the outside, um, what, what will success be for you in, in your business and in what you're doing? Like, what keeps you going and what keeps you pushing forwards like this? Oh, right now what keeps me going is parents sending pictures of their kids doing our content. Uh, you know, I mean, for me, I've always been driven by creating opportunities for those people who feel like they don't have opportunities, uh, whether that's through education, whether that's through, you know, changing careers, that's always driven me. I'm driven very strongly by those who perhaps don't always have the same opportunities as other in life, others in life, being able to see that they, they are special and they do have skills and the world needs their skills. Um, so I think I'm always going to be driven by that. And, you know, we're seeing that now with our new product, but we saw that with the kitchen science cookbook. We saw that with the stage shows is that allowing kids and parents to realize that they are creative. They are techni you know, technical or sciencey or the cake that they've always baked actually is a massive chemistry experiment and that they are creators. My big goal is that I want kids to not just be consumers, but to actually be creators of the technologies that they use. And the only way we're going to do that is by encouraging them to tinker, to learn, to use language around themselves like engineering um, that they may not have associated with before because the stereotype is some dude in some welding gear, um, which isn't what we all look like. So yeah, I'm always going to be driven and I'd love to see the data and the stats show that we have an increase in diversity in our science and technology fields, um, which is still pretty, pretty poor, actually. Um, we're the best in New Zealand and most Western countries and we have 13% of engineers who are women. And I would love to see that represent the population. Yeah, that's bananas, isn't it? Um, and one last thought, if you could let us know, how can people find this new online learning platform and how can they get involved? Yeah, so it's called Nano Girls Lab, as in it's the lab that Nano Girl has. And so uh, nanogirlslab.com is the easiest place to find it. It's um, a 10 week program and it's a dollar a day. So it's $50 for the whole 10 weeks. That's 50 lessons. That includes your parent cheat sheet every morning before your kids wake up, the videos for your kids to follow, their instructional videos and the worksheet for them to follow. Um, and it's probably about one to two hours of content a day for them to just 
just tinker around with. And for everyone that we sell, we donate one to a family who can't afford it. And if you don't have kids, we also have a donation button. We have a wait list, I can't tell you, even in two days with so many sad stories of families who now have financial insecurity because of COVID who want to be able to provide this to their kids, but they can't afford it. So if you want to buy one for a family in New Zealand or anywhere else in the world, tell us where you want it bought for and we will donate that to kids and parents on our wait list. And we've got a free free stuff up there too if you can't afford to pay for it and you just want the free stuff with this free content as well as the structured content. And so that's who we are and that's what we do. Um, open to any ideas. People want to help us. People want to share it. That would be super helpful. We're just a little Kiwi company trying to make a huge impact on the world um, in a positive way at a really challenging time. Oh, that's so magic. Well, thank you so much for coming and uh, sharing the story. Best wishes for the new venture. We can't wait to get into it. Uh, that's Dr. Michelle Dickinson, also known as Nano Girl. Thank you for sharing your story today. Thanks, Simon. Great. Thanks so much. Uh, yeah, and thank you so much for having us along uh, in this new way of uh, bringing the podcasts to you. Uh, if you've got any feedback, hit me up on Twitter. It's at Simon underscore Pound. Thanks so much. Bye. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring. Brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.